and shalom, everyone. Welcome to the Parashat Ekev podcast for the week. This is the Get You Some slash Midnight Tour Study slash Go Till You Drop. <laughs> and I uh, just want to start with the opening bracha and get right away with some insights. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Bakarbanu Mikol Hamim Venatan Lanu Etorato Baruch Atah Adonai Noten HaTorah Amen Amen So, first thing I'm going to start off with is a source that the human Lapid has graciously let me borrow, which I need to spend way more time than I have been spending in it. It is a source called 913, The Secret Wisdom of Bereshit, from Rabbi Yitzhak Ginsberg. And, uh, of course, it says the wisdom of Genesis, but, uh, you know, Bereshit is the Hebrew name. But I digress. I'm going to start off in the preface on page 11. And, um, you know, we have this thing on Arab Shabbat where we dip our challah in salt, which in Hebrew is malach, mem lamed chet. So mem lamed chet is the word for salt. And the word for the challah is lechem which is the word for bread, and lechem is lamet chet mem. Now you know that those are the same letters, just spelled differently. But let me give you an introduction here, because this is completely mathematical. I love numbers, and I have been away from doing some gematria uh, lately, but this will be a little taste of that, and then we'll get back into Normal insights without having to work the brain so crazy. All right, so in Torah, there's this thing called prime numbers. And it says prime numbers are the elements of the integers. And all words in Hebrew have an integer value. It is revealing to look at the primes whose product is the value of a particular number or word. Going back to the example of 90, Okay, so this is what all of that means in simple English. We can say that 90 has 30 measures of 3. Or it has 3 measures of 30. You know, because 3 times 30 is 90. We could also say that 90 has 45 measures of 2. Or vice versa and so on. So... That leads us to identify the multiples of other central numbers as base measures as well. For example, the most important word in the Pentateuch is Hashem's essential name, the Yod and He, with the Vav and He, the four-letter name of Hashem, which is pronounced Adonai, and that value is 26, though 26 is a composite number. It is 2 times 13. It is still very interesting to look at this, to look at its multiples. You got 26, double that, you got 52, double that, 
you got 78 well not, not necessarily doubling that but uh, you go up to 78 and then you go 104 130 156 and 182 208 etc you view them as a group of inherently connected numbers so we would call this the zero modulus 26 group of integers i.e. numbers whose remainder when divided by 26 is zero okay so that's obviously very crazy but that's like a little introduction so uh, for the mathematical people out there I uh, wanted to just uh, share my heart with you so alright now moving on to this really really neat point about the Chala with the Malach if you look at the Arizal's Kabbalistic writings it reveals that the analysis of the Hebrew words values based on base measures is central to mystical intentions one simple illustration is that one should dip lechem in malak, so dip bread in salt. So when we do that custom, that practice is not an obligation. It's not something if you don't do it, then don't eat. But it's a little enrichment. All right. So it says that when you dip this, the value of both words is seventy-eight. You dip this three times before eating because 78 times 3, or 78 is 3 times 26. Meaning that as a base measure, God's essential name, Hashem, fits into bread and salt three times. So if you think about what we're really doing, we're saying Hashem, Hashem, Hashem. You know, and if you say Hashem, Hashem, that's the beginning of the 13 attributes of Hashem. But then you go into the fact that you're talking about Hashem's divine name and, you know, you're eating the bread, you're dipping into the salt. And the incredible Talmud brought down this beautiful elucidation, which I think was from the Mayam Loez, but I could be wrong. And that's okay, but the point was that when we are dipping the salt into the bread, that's a form of mitigating uh, strict judgment, so to speak. And so you think about the fact that when we eat the challah, when we're thankful to Hashem, you know, it's almost the form of doing a mikvah. Because when you do a mikvah, you dip yourself three times in the water you know this is why when we do hand washing it's three times per hand because it's like a mikvah and so we have this idea of immersing ourselves into Hashem's goodness and repelling judgment and justice and sweetening is what we're pulling closer to so we're bringing forth sweetness repelling away judgment so we're doing that with a mikvah which is, again, another reason why Teshuva is such a really, really beautiful thing. Now, we are currently closing out the month of Av and heading into 
the month of Elul. And as we do that, we are quickly and fast approaching the 40 days of Teshuvah. Now, the 40 days of Teshuvah represent the final ascent Moshe made up Mount Sinai. And when he made this ascent, it was with two new tablets that were carved out and they had remnants of the sapphire tablets in them. And he was taking the Mac up to renew the covenant with Hashem to be followed by his descent on the 10th of Tishri, which would be Yom Kippur. Now, um, we got Rosh Hodesh Elul starting uh, on in a couple of weeks. So we got one week and one, two, three, one week and three days. So about 10 days away from there. So when you're kind of looking at this time frame, think about when Mashiach Yeshua was resurrected and he spent 40 days with his Talmudim and appearing to all those who had placed their faith in him and probably just anybody who just needed to get them some as far as, you know, feasting their eyes up on the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. If they were kind of, I'm not really sure if this guy is legit or not, or is this really the Mashiach? Did this really happen? And it's like Yeshua shows up and he's teaching. And, you know, by the way, what was he teaching? He was teaching Torah. I would also go on to say on the Emet elucidation and uh, interject that Mashiach taught the Torah as would have been given and expounded upon in the sapphire tablets. Why do I say that? Well, because with the sapphire tablets, it was going to be the oral and the written Torah all together in one. And again, you have the fact that the letters floated. You have the fact that these tablets are just like super heavy. They're gargantuan. They're the size of a person. They're cubed. So they're also the size of a tiny house. And so it's just kind of like you can place yourself in the tablets, but really the tablets were supposed to be placed in us. That's why the word of Hashem, the Torah, is supposed to be written on our hearts. The law of God written on our hearts. Like that was the intent of the first tablets. So when you think about Mashiach Yeshua who literally would have represented that in his physical form that he was in post-resurrection. You know, I imagine he had this uh, spiritual, physical, like transcendent type um, aspect to him. Obviously, uh, Thomas was able to stick his hand in his side and be like, yeah, okay, you're the Mashiach. Well, remember... The tablets being engraved, as we go back to Parashat Kitisa, when we talked about the the uh, letters being engraved upon the tablets, which the word engraved is charut, which is a Hebrew word, which also relates to pierced. And remember, Mashiach was pierced, and that's where Thomas inserted his hand. And so it was like he wanted to stick his hand inside the Lukot which would have been the body of Mashiach. So, anyway, I just um, put all that deductive reasoning together to just say that, you know, it's possible that Mashiach was teaching some of that heavenly Torah that um, 
only we could imagine, you know, as far as the Hasidic and the Zohar and all sorts of the mystical um, commentaries on the parasha. So, anyway, just wanted to throw that out there. And while I'm doing these midnight Torah studies, I just wanted to bring up the fact that, you know, part of the Teshuvah process is um, just really finding an area within your life that you can really uh, excel in and use your talents and dedication and giftings for Hashem to the max. And so it is not easy to uh, stay awake with Hashem for one hour <laughs> and uh, do this, especially in the mix of a crazy and busy world that we live in. So I just wanted to share a couple of verses that um, have been inspirational and uh, Bezrat Hashem, they will be encouraging to you. So first one is Zechariah 4.6 and Zechariah 4.6 was definitely a pasuk of the Haftarah earlier in Sefer Bamibar. I feel like it was uh, it was not Naso. I think it was Beha Alotka, or yes, it was Beha Alotka. It was the Haftarah portion for that. And so, in there, it was talking about the menorah and all these beautiful things. But when it got to 4 6, it says, So he said to me, This is the word of Hashem to Zerubbabel, or Zerubbabel, which means the seed who was born between Babel, like the seed that was brought forth in the midst of exile so there's kind of that idea that you know Mashiach in exile with us and he will uh, return with us from exile you know that whole kind of picture and um, anyway so that's the rubable but it says that not by might nor by power but by my spirit it says Adonai Zebaot Let's get some Hebrew going over here. Okay, so it says, Lo vechayil velo bekoak ki im beruki amar Hashem zebaot. There you go. So not by my, not by power, but by my spirit, says Adonai zebaot, master of legions. Now, um, I just want to go to the next verse here. Because in Matityahu 26.41, it says, Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so if you think about the spirit being willing, and that is the empowerment of Hashem that's going to cause us to return from exile. It's all about basically being filled with the spirit of Hashem and staying on our guard. Alright, so there is that verse. And then I was thinking about the fact that praying for the Geula to happen speedily and soon in our days, really striving and pressing towards the high mark of the upward call in Mashiach Yeshua, laying aside all impediments, all weights that so easily entangle us. I was thinking, when the redemption happens and we're in it, you know, what's to cause us to, you know, 
literally us, not necessarily the Geula itself, but what's to cause us to fully rejoice in that forever without end? Because, you know, we're going to be in the Geula for a long time and there will be no more exiles, you know? And so thinking if we just think, oh man, just give it all we got to the Geula and then I can relax. It's just like, no, not really. Because if you think about what the actuality of reality will be, it's that we're going to a higher level. We're going to be increased. We're going to be in our resurrected form serving Hashem, you know, without end, like rejoicing, dancing in the streets of Yerushalayim, going to be in the Beit HaMikdash, you know, looking up on all the great cloud of witnesses who've gone before us. And, you know, what's to sustain, you know, our thoughts and keep us passionate and excited? You know, just not not saying that, you know, Hashem is not going to cause this this yearning and this passion and this empowerment, but just for the sake of our own mentality and free will that we've been granted, you know, we want to make sure that we're serious. We want to make sure that down to the depths of our soul, that the Geula penetrates all of who we are, you know, from our thoughts to our speech, to our deeds, to our yearnings. You know, I just really have this stirring because this week, I mean, the Torah portion is all about fearing Hashem. It's all about becoming a new man. It's all about really getting down to the depths of what is our character? Who are we? You know, and what do we desire? What is our heart set on? What is the goal of our, our service? You know, and so... The all of the thoughts with that just made me think, you know, make sure that we understand that we want to bring ourselves into a place of where we personally are sustained just within our own selves. Not because, you know, Hashem was it's def has definitely empowered us. We are filled with the Ruach HaKodesh. And it's just that with all that being said, you know, where are we? You know, are we really laying down our lives? Do we really deny ourselves? Are we really setting aside everything else and completely saying, Hashem, I just want you. Hashem, I just love you. Hashem, bring me into your bosom just like you did Yochanan. You know, that kind of thing. So, Kohelet 9-11. This is funny. Kohelet is Ecclesiastes, and it says, I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. I want to key in, well, first of all, that whole verse, just wow. I mean, the battle is not given to the strong, food doesn't come to the wise, wealth not to the brilliant, favor to the learned, like, none of that, like, it doesn't match up. 
You know, it's just kind of like if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, you have to be a servant, you know. And when you do acts of kindness and service to the least of them, you've done it to the greatest of them. You know, Mashiach was talking about visiting the sick and clothing the poor and uh, visiting those who are in prison, you know, giving water to those who thirst. And, you know, let's go ahead and just go to that real quick, you know. Um, and while I do that, just to wrap this verse here, the race is not to the swift. And, you know, we have to know that it's actually to those who endure. So we, we must make sure that as we are serving Hashem, that we endure, that we are like completely devoted, we're completely dedicated. So the one who endures to the end, as it says in Matthew 24, uh, let's see here, pulling up all sorts of verses, going crazy over here, you know, it's kind of my MO, just to go crazy. Uh, if you endure chastening, you are uh, sons of God, you know, as you find in Hebrews chapter 12. Starts bringing that up. Okay, so if we look at Matthew 24, 13, it says, But whoever holds out to the end will be delivered. And this good news about the kingdom will be announced throughout the whole world as a witness to the Goyim. It is then that the end will come. And so just thinking about the fact of us enduring, the race is not given to the swift. The battle is not given to the strong. You know, like we really have like the supernatural thing that's going on. Now, uh, according to what I'm looking up here, there technically is not a verse that says uh, it's the the race is not to the swift, but to those who endure. So I'm going to just quickly double check that. OK, so just looking uh, throughout the different texts, different verses of the Bible, there literally is not a verse that says. The race is not given to the swift, but to those who endure. There is a part that says the race is not given to the swift, and that's our Kohelet verse. But everything else talks about, you know, uh, running a race and things like that. But nothing about connecting those two ideas per se in one verse. So uh, that's really really surprising to me because you know i've kind of heard that before and it's kind of like wait but that's not really a verse so um hashtag make sure that we check all our sources <laughs> or as we like to say as lapete what's your source for that so um yeah so here we go so just wanted to share the kohelet verse that you know as we're running this race that you know you don't have to be swift. You know, that's that's not how we um, we operate, you know, in the kingdom. Take your time, you know, and really be enthusiastic and, and turned up. But it's not about just go as fast as you can and then, you know, pass out. <laughs> it's just kind of like 
pace yourself. It's all right. You know, um, as far as I'm concerned, when it's the turtle versus the the rabbit or the tortoise and the hare, as they would call it, that, uh, you know, the rabbit was a little too, basically, uh, he was overconfident, let's just say that. And uh, that caused him some issues in the quote-unquote long run, if you know what I'm saying. But, uh, you know, the turtle just kept at it and humble and he ended up winning. So, you know, I just think if we understand that, that as we're heading into the redemption with the return of Mashiach speedily and soon in our days, may it be so that take our time, deepen, you know, our devotion, our love to him. Because in the end, I think that'll be more meaningful than how quickly we get there. You know, I've been talking to Yeshiyahu because that's my homeboy, homeboy. And uh, he really inspires me with his heart because like he's he's so willing to learn. And you don't really uh, see that a lot, you know, as far as like people who really pay attention to things and who really uh, just kind of, you know, are willing to get in there, you know, uh, been blessed at Sar Shalom, I'll tell you that, to see people in the congregation like that, but when you're not at Sar Shalom and you're out and about, you're just like, oh, wow, I met this other person who's like turned up, and I was like, that's cool, so it's just like we want to fill the whole world up with people who who get it. Who are like Hebrew is such a divine language. Torah, mitzvot, Yeshua, the Ruach Hakodesh, like amazing combination. Bring me in, you know, kind of thing, and just loving God. I mean that that's really awesome. So I was talking to him, and you know, we were just kind of going back and forth about man, like Mashiach returning, like what what is that you know like yes there's like wars and rumors of wars and you know craziness happening in the world and it's just like here comes the king you know like days of noah will he find faith on the earth type prophecy and it's just like well he'll at least find us <laughs> you know um namely lapides you know lapidim is the plural so any of us who have joined ourselves to Hashem and who say, you know, we place our Amunah in Mashiach and we want to hearken to the words of Torah. It's just kind of like, man, like this is it. So those kind of people. And um, it was just one of those moments where we just kind of took a Selah where we're like, man, imagine being in the temple. Imagine being in Yerushalayim. Imagine just uh, beginning the Olam Haba, like, you know, going into, you know, the next phase of, of, you know, the life that we've been given. I mean, it's incredible. It's like, what is that going to completely and fully look like? We don't know, but we kind of know a little, a little bit, you know, we get some ideas that, you know, there's going to be lots of wars going on and Yerushalayim will be surrounded and things like that. But I mean, the king is here, like complete reverence, royalty, like, wow. So anyway, I don't know. 
We'll be like dreamers, as the uh, Tehillim 126 says, and I'm dreaming right now. Tell you that. But in this time, as we're heading into, well, we're fading into actually the uh, the 40 days of Shuvah because if we start now, like getting those wheels turning, by the day one of the 40 days, we can like hit that full speed. You know, um, Rabbi Griffin, a.k.a. Captain Israel, brought down an amazing shore on the 40 days of Shuva. The king is in the field, the month of Elul, and all that. Um, so if you go to MySarShalom.com and check that out on live stream, that's, I mean, I'm telling you, it's epic. And obviously, it'll be posted on YouTube as well, so check it out make sure you give yourself a listen but one of the cool takeaways that i had from it was you know this whole idea of teshuva and like renewal you know the one new man um the dying to our old self becoming a new creation like that's all in jewish writings and he brings all of that up and it's just like wait what are you serious and we shouldn't be surprised, but I mean, it's just, it's so refreshing. You know, as Lapid, we're just like so happy that we can find something from Corinthians and like, you know, Mishnah or something from like, I don't know, Mark and Matthew and Luke and John. We find that in Mayam Loez and it's just like, wait, what? And we find parables and, you know, the Midrash gets you some that correlate to different parables that Mashiach dropped and you're just like man and not to mention all the Talmud references that are all throughout the gospels so you know there's that but you know in the midst of talking about this teshuva you know um Captain Israel said we should check out um second Shamuel chapter chapter 12 and so look at some commentary in there and so that's what I'm going to do right now Second Shamuel chapter 12 and verse 13. This is coming from the uh, stone edition, Tanakh. And yes, it is a art scroll publication. So the stone cold, amazing knockout on 1213. Because 1213 says, uh, David said to Natan, I have sinned to Hashem. Vayomer Natan el David Gamaronai he evir yeah he evir chatat and then lo tamut so I've sinned to Hashem oh sleek I read the wrong verse how about we go back one it says Vayomer David el Natan chatati la Adonai okay. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned to Hashem. The footnote says, in response to your immediate admission of guilt of Shaul's reaction to Shamuel's accusations, 1 Shamuel 13, 11 and 15, 20, see the Malbim. And it says, God has mitigated the severity of punishment you really deserve. Sincere confession is the first step of Teshuvah. So yeah, mitigating our judgment. Absolutely insane. 
So if you think about Matthew 4.17, from that time on, Yeshua began proclaiming, turn from your sins to God, for the kingdom of Hashemayim is near. We have a mitigation of the severity. You know, we're currently in exile, and if we're making Teshuva, if we're crying out for Hashem, you know, what father is not going to come to their crying child? And we don't have to wait for crazy wars to just like go all out and, and the world get nuked and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, we can we can mitigate judgment, you know. And so the the underlying Tehillim that Rabbi Griffin dropped is Tehillim 51. So, you know, I had to pull the green book out. And so. It starts off in this Tehillim saying that when Natan, the prophet, came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. Because, you know, David went and took another man's wife, basically. And so that was kind of horrible. But, you know, um, we're going to move past that here. And it says in the commentary on Tehillim 51.2, it says, after Natan rebuked him, David said, I have sinned to God. After Natan departed, David recited this psalm. That's from the Radak. So you have Tehillim 51 being like this confession of guilt, extreme, I failed, oh my word, kind of uh, position. And so let's see where we're going to go here drop some insights mistakes of the past this is a Hasidic thought sin taints the heart and prevents us from drawing near to God okay so repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand so you think about what that really means repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand like the kingdom is close and it's even closer you know if you're continuing into Shuba but if you're going to move away from repentance and move into sin, then you're going to have a tainted heart and you're going to be prevented from drawing near to Hashem. So you have this idea already of Teshuvah being like breaking through barriers. All right. So then it says Teshuvah cleanses the heart, enabling us to once again connect with God. The heart, however, possesses endless depth, and our journey towards an even deeper connection with God, we plumb the depths of our heart to develop a more complete relationship with Him. When we foray into these uncharted, loftier places within our soul, we are hindered by our previous sins and our previous state our teshuva sufficed to remove the effects of sin. These deeper levels, however, uh, see, are more sensitive, and our previous teshuva cannot dissolve the barrier the sin creates in this higher plane. So I find this interesting. We're talking about going higher as we are lowering ourselves. Just saying, that's kind of the backdrop of this comment. And then it says, thus David declares, my sin is always before me. And uh, boom, 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 purify my sin. 
I was indeed forgotten your judgment teach me this is how I read real fast I'm just kidding oh yes okay so for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me that is verse 5 okay so it says to constantly ascend in our relationship with Hashem we must constantly be aware of our past transgressions we must attend to these sins which have consequence and are more advanced levels of devotion to God. At the same time, we ought not to obsess over these sins and not allow them to weigh down heavily upon our hearts. This would only serve to discourage us from advancing in our spiritual service. This is why David uses the word negdi, which is translated as before me, negdi is implied or used to imply a distance. I am aware of my sins, but I place them at a distance. Okay, so uh, here it is. This is definitely Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. So since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us too put aside every impediment. That is the sin which so easily hampers our forward movement and keep running with endurance in the contest set before us. Now, this translation I'm reading is the complete Jewish Bible. And as of 24 hours ago, I was really upset with this translation because it is verse, because I've known this verse is fix and focus our eyes upon the author, perfecter and finisher of our emunah. But this translation says, looking away to the initiator and completer. Now, the beautiful thing about the uh, shalom that has now descended upon me with this verse, check out the interlinear. So when you check out the interlinear, this is what you find. It says, looking away is... Strong's number 872. It says, I look away from something else. I look away from all else. And I see distinctly. And I am looking away from something else to fix my gaze upon. And then it says that there was a place that I was uh, getting into. Oh, okay, that's what it is. So... If you keep going down, it's got the word for author and perfecter. Now, the belief of or the comment of, well, if you follow Torah and the mitzvot and fill with the spirit, then why do you need Yeshua? Well, here's the deal. Yeshua is this. Uh, by the way, first of all, Yeshua is the living Torah. Like he's the Torah made flesh. He is the voice of Hashem. And he is the oneness of Hashem. You know, we, we talked about how Echad literally means one body of many members. But on top of all that, if you look at what the word for the perfecter, the completer, the finisher, look at that word. And it says that this specifically refers to Yeshua, the one bringing the life of faith to its completion and conclusion, its consummation and its finish. 
In every scene of his earthly life, Yeshua lived in Amuna, i.e. receiving and perfectly obeying the inbirthing of the Father's will. And so, basically, through Yeshua, we internalize everything external about our Emuna, all the mitzvot, all the words of Torah, the tablets, the temple, the spirit, like we now embody that and it's within us. It's literally written on our heart, you know, and they were talking in uh, Hasidic commentary that if you think about the the letters engraved upon the tablets, it talks about how this engraving process is like this constant study, toiling in Torah, losing your life in the tent of Torah study. And it's like through Yeshua, you already have this aspect of engraving going on. And so as you're binding yourself to him, he's engraving upon you and within you. Torah, Amuna, the Ruach, like, you know, so that's one thing. Then I'm keeping going in the word study here, and it says, fixing our eyes upon Yeshua, he is the file leader. And the file leader, it says, he's the one who is first. He pioneers the way for many others to follow. It does not mean author, but rather a person who is the originator or founder of a movement and continues as the leader, a pioneer and a founding leader. So think about what Mashiach did and how he did it. And that's the way we go. You know, in Romanos chapter eight, this is also what it says. This is another verse that I love to quote. Uh Chapter 8, verse 29. But those whom he knew in advance, he also determined in advance, would be conformed to the pattern of his son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, I just want to throw it out there that if Mashiach is the pioneer, and we're not following in that path of pioneering, chances are we need to... Uh, what does the GPS say? Recalculating <laughs> or, uh, you know, make a U-turn, that whole kind of thing. So that needs to happen. And then if you go to Matthew 28, it says Yeshua uh, came and talked with them. He said, all authority in Hashemayim and on Ha'aretz has been given to me because he's the Torah. So, you know, everything was made through and by him. It says, therefore, go and make people from all nations into Talmudim, immersing them into the reality of the Father, the Son, and the Ruach HaKodesh, teaching them to obey everything. Okay? I don't know how many times I can say everything. Teach them everything that I have commanded you. And remember I will be with you always. Yes, even until the end of the age. So if you're truly going to be obedient to the Mashiach, Yeshua, the King of Israel, you have to teach everything that he teaches us, which is the spirit of the law, the spirit of Torah, you know, walking in righteousness, really just staying in the presence of Hashem, 
and being full of amuna. So take that verse and put that with Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2. It says, For the gospel, the good news, has been proclaimed, or also has been proclaimed to us. I love how it says also, because we need to know that with the quote-unquote beginning of the Brit Hadashah, which that's not really a thing, because the covenant has been renewed constantly, but obviously when Mashiach came in the flesh, I get that that's a new uh, chapter and thing like that, but we can't really look at the Bible as this two-part deal. It's it's one book. And so if there are 40 different authors with the same message, then if you divide up the book, you're pitting these authors against one another. And you're saying, well, now that we have this author who's come at the end of the book and he has lots and lots of writings, when you put all the volume of his writings together, they still don't stand up in quantity comparison to the whole section of just the five books of Torah alone. So if we're really looking at quantity, Torah, just in the five books, is actually a bigger chunk of the Bible than Shaul's writings. And then not only that, but Shaul's, Shaul's writings are just letters that he wrote to people, you know, encouragements and uh, rebukes. And, you know, he visited those people face to face and those applied to things that were going on in their time and in their in their uh, vicinity of where they lived. That's why it's literally called the letter to the Corinthians or the letter to the Ephesians. You know, these are people who lived in those places who had certain issues that pertain to those places. And it's just like, we need help, you know. And so, I mean, it's a whole weird process when you think about really the conglomeration of uh, what's in the Matthew through Revelation section. Because of Torah, because of the Ruach of Hashem, it doesn't matter what part of the Bible you look in, you're still going to be able to find beautiful and wonderful things because that's just the way it is. Like the truth is going to seek out the truth. So uh, I used to be upset and be like, rip that New Testament and Old Testament page out of the Bible and, you know, all this kind of like mentality of. There's no New Testament, no Old Testament. And, you know, we need to make sure that we hold on to the New Testament and all this kind of stuff. And it's just like, you know what? It's the Tanakh, it's the Brit HaDashah. The Brit HaDashah is the Basora. It is the writings, you know, and that's okay. No big deal. You know, if you remain in Hashem, you seek after Mashiach and you walk in the mitzvot, the statutes and the decrees of Hashem, the testimonies. You walk in covenant with him. It doesn't matter where in the 66 books you look, you will not be thrown off course. You know, you literally get to find the oneness of Hashem throughout the whole thing. And so, yeah, so I've just kind of calmed down on that and I'll just go back and forth between... 
you know, all these sections of the richness of the word that Hashem has allowed us to have. So what was possibly meant for bad is actually probably to the greater good because, you know, really the only way to glean from the word of God is to have the word of God in you, you know, to have Mashiach in you, to have your heart and mind given to Hashem to have a circumcised heart, you know. So anyway, that's all looking at Hebrews 4 verse 2 because it says we've also been proclaimed the good news. And it's just like, where was the first time the good news was proclaimed? Well, that was on Mount Sinai when the Torah was given, you know. Then while we're at it, I just want to take a, a moment to mention some precedents, you know that the speaking in the tongues, the tongues of fire, that whole picture, that happened at Mount Sinai, just like it happened in Acts chapter 2. In Shemot 19, or Parsha Yitro, at Mount Sinai, that all happened on Shavuot, which was 50 days after the counting of the Omer started from the festival of Pesach. The same time frame, the same holiday, the same uh, specifications and circumstances, except being at Mount Sinai, they were in Yerushalayim, they were at Mount Zion, basically, the same picture happened. So there was the tongues of fire, there were people from all nations, and the Torah was spoken in 70 different languages. That all happened in Acts chapter 2. So we see this mirror uh this mirrored precedent going on. So uh, another precedent is the whole process of Bereshit chapter 22 corresponds and correlates and parallels the different accounts of the Basora that covers the crucifixion account because the fact of carrying the the stake, you know, like Mashiach carrying the beam and then they, they go and get another guy to help him. Okay, that was shown with the story of the Akedah, the account of the Akedah. That the reason why Yitzhak had to carry his wood is because he was basically being shown that you're about to go to your death. And so it's just kind of like, okay, well... I embrace my death, you know, I will go forth and be a sacrifice. Okay, Yeshua did the same thing. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the crucifixion stake. That's all happening. Obviously, the word Akeda means to be bound. And uh, Yitzhak's hands and his feet basically showed the marks of him being a sacrifice. And then when he got up off the altar... It was considered a resurrection because his soul left his body, which, by the way, at Mount Sinai, as Hashem spoke the words to the people, their souls left their bodies. And with the next word that he would say, their souls returned to their bodies. And so it's just like this constant, you know, death and resurrection happening. But anyway, I digress. So if you look at the Akeda, when Yitzhak's soul leaves his body and it's returned unto him, literally in the Pearl K, the Pure K de Rebbe Eliezer, it says that Yitzhak sat up and recited 
the bracha that says Barukata Adonai Eloheinu Menachalam Mechaye Hametim restores and who brings the soul back to those who are dead. You know, basically who resurrects us from the dead. So yeah, that's all. So I mean, it's just a lot of precedence. I mean, I can keep going, but I need to read verse 2 of chapter Hebrews, or chapter 4 of Hebrews. We've all been proclaimed the gospel, and it says, But the message they heard did not do them any good, because those who heard it did not combine it with trust. And again, this is why I go back to the first part of me sharing so much when I was trying to introduce Kohelet 9-11, that when we're hearing Hashem, when we're reading His Torah, we have to combine it with trust. We can't just go, yeah, I studied today, and that's cool. It's like, no, do you really walk in what you study? Do you really place your habitation and what you're saying and what you're gleaning and the insights that Hashem is giving? So, you know, we got to do that. You know, keep it on our mind. Think it back over, you know. Like, to me, just knowing that our teshuva, you know, overturns our past judgments you know, overturns our past mistakes, and we have to walk into Shuva at every moment, and we need to do it immediately. Like, man, that's powerful. And we are we're hastening the return of Mashiach, by the way, when we're doing that. When we are literally doing the Great Commission that is from Matthew chapter twenty eight. You know, like that's all like a blessing. So the Basora which, by the way, you need to know Basora literally can be translated as Habasar. Because if you take the hay at the end and put it in the front, you now have the flesh. And whose flesh is the flesh? That is Yeshua. Yeshua was the flesh of the bread that descended from Hashemayim. The flesh of the word that was spoken by Hashem. Yeshua is the flesh. He's the fleshing out of the Ruach HaKodesh. All right, another insight from Tehillim 51. Let's do verse 6. It says, Only you, okay, to you alone have I sinned. Only you are aware of it. Nobody else knows why I summoned Bathsheba, nor of my true intentions in sending Uriah to the front lines. Rav Sadia Gaon explains that the verse or explains the verse as follows. To you alone do I confess and say I have sinned and done what is evil in your eyes. This interpretation of this verse is supported by the Talmudic teaching that one should not publicly confess sins between man and God, such as forbidden unions or desecration of the Shabbat. Yoma 86b. Wow. Confessing your sins... Okay, so if they're between you and God, it's not necessarily that you should publicly confess that. So you think about the Yom Kippur service and how we're all like saying these different um, sins on the list that, you know, we're all confessing and asking for forgiveness from and for, um, you know, it's it's not these um uh, personal sins that are just between men and Hashem. They're general, uh, more publicly wide known things like 
I've fallen short in thinking about you and making your making my day, you know, fixed and focused upon you. Like I've lied, you know, I've cheated, you know, and things like that. Not like specific awkward things, you know. So anyway, love how they bring that out. Uh, let's see, uh, Telling fifty one seven. Indeed, I was begotten in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. At birth, the Yetzahara is implanted into the heart of the child. David, therefore, considers himself to have been born and begotten in iniquity. That's from the Ibn Ezra. Alternatively, a person is formed primarily through the act of intimacy which is susceptible to perversion. The human product of this act is therefore susceptible to sin. That's from Rashi. And particularly sins of intimacy. That is Radak citing his father. So now as we talk about the Yetzahara being implanted into our hearts as a child, I was listening to Rabbi Moshe New. And he was bringing down this idea about using the Yetzahara to serve Hashem. Now, off the top of your head, that probably sounded a little weird. But before I really go into depth of what he said, I want to draw our attention to the war that is going on inside of us. Okay, so it is Galatians 5, 17. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. Now, let's look up the word for flesh real quick. Obviously, it would be bizarre, but I'm just curious. Okay, a little Greek action going on. Carnal, merely of human origin or empowerment. Not always evil in scripture. Indeed, it is positively used in relation to uh, marital relations as well as for the sinless human body of Yeshua. So, yeah, that's quite the jump there <laughs> for the same word. Um, so, it says that, in short, flesh generally relates to unaided human effort, i.e. decisions and actions that originate from self, or they're empowered by self. And obviously, there's the Hebrew word basar. So, if we look at what Galatians 5.17 is really touching on, it's really basically saying that there's either the spirit of Hashem or there is the human mechanics at work here. Which obviously would be tainted by the Yetzahara. Or is it? Because according to the Shi'ur given by Rabbi Nu, he was saying that the Yetzahara is likened to a servant of the king who was hired to seduce the king's son. Now, the thing about that is that the servant is obedient to the king, but the servant does not want to seduce the son. Yet, the hope is that the king's son would overcome the seductions and the tactics. And so if you think about what the Yetzahara really does for us is grants us the opportunity to overcome temptation. And again, if we go back to our verses, Matthew 26, talking about staying awake and watching out for temptation. 
you know, and the body is weak, but the spirit is willing, you know. And so you have this idea of overcoming your yetzer, and this is what you can use to serve Hashem, and this is also part of the teshuva process that was laid down by Rabbi Griffin that is a part of our 40 days of teshuva that we have to really subdue our yetzer to keep us from doing what we want to do but to do what Hashem wants us to do and to really mean that and there was a source that uh, Rabbi Griffin was quoting that sounded like a machine gun because it went into all these things from Yeshiyahu 29 around verse 13 that was talking about the lip service of the people of God uh, back during Yeshiyahu's prophecy that there was this element that people honored God with their lips but their hearts were far from him and how prayers would be mechanically recited and blessings would be the same and none of that was done for the sake of blessing and exalting Hashem. And so it says Hashem blinded them to these simple truths and all these, uh, all these insights. And so if you really think about why in the world can we look into the Torah and see Yeshua like everywhere jumping off the page like going crazy. But yet, the Yehudim, who are in non-believing Judaism, as a, as a po- uh, as far as faith in Mashiach being Torah observant in Yeshua, as far as that goes, that section, you know, they don't really have these same insights. They don't really see all these things because they're blinded. There's a veil that's been placed over their eyes, and so, you know, that's kind of sad, but. We can all be people who uh, make a lot of noise and make a lot of sense that cause them to be like, huh, what is going on? Is there something we're missing here? You know, and Hashem takes away the veil. So, you know, there's that. But we can use our Yetzir Hara to serve Hashem. We can fight the tactics and the seductions of, you know, wanting to have our own way. Uh, let's see here. Teach me wisdom in that which is hidden. Okay, so this is in Tehillim. And it says that in my heart, which is hidden, uh, which is hidden, give me wisdom to confess. Teach me and reveal to me the insights that are hidden from me. Okay, so this is a part of the whole Teshuvah process, like, really ask Hashem for all that. So, there's that. Um, this week's Haftarah comes from Yeshayahu 49. It goes all the way into uh, Yeshayahu 51. And um, I love quoting this verse all the time. Yeshayahu 51, starting at verse 2. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who brought you forth. You know, and so you think about that we are children of converts when it comes to Abraham and Sarah. And that they were the first Yehudim. It's not a bloodline. It's a covenant line. And it just so happens when you enter into covenant, you receive that blood. There's that. 
so you become fully Jewish and all that kind of stuff. But it says in verse three, truly Hashem has formed Zion, comforted all her ruins. He made her wilderness like Eden, her desert like gone, like the garden of God. Gladness and joy shall abide there. Strength or Sliga, uh, thanksgiving and the sound of music. Restoration. This is all happening after exile. But if we're not really fighting, if we're not really challenging ourselves, if we're not really deepening our devotion to Hashem, then, uh, you know, it's going to kind of be hard to really rejoice and be thankful and have all this gladness going on. So may we all be filled with the Ruach HaKodesh and walk in his power and walk in the footsteps of Mashiach Yeshua. So making lots of teshuva. Let's go to some Dr. Sakal. Dr. Sakal has been obviously on a uh, rampage lately. This comes from the Midrash says he wants us to look at Ekev about loving the stranger. Oh, well, look at that. Pressing into uh, the covenant. <laughs> Love how this is all flowing together. You know, we were talking about Abraham and Sarah and they were children of converts and all that. So, page 141 from the Midrash says, Parsha Kev, Hashem similarly said, Shall we not approach, or shall we not appreciate the Gear, who has left his family and people, who chose the truth and rejected falsehood? He came to take shelter under the wings of the Shekinah. Is he not deserving of our special regard and kindness? Yeah, he keeps going like that's okay. Uh, it says the Torah commands us to love a gear in very many places and joins us not to hurt his feelings. Okay, so not only do we not need to look down on people, we also don't need to hurt their feelings, especially the strangers. There's uh, compassion. So... It looks like he's going to go into a parable, and that's cool. It says, A shepherd led his flock to the fields in the morning and gathered it into the stable at night. One day, a deer appeared from the forest, joined the flock, and strayed or and stayed among the sheep. It grazed with them and at night entered the stable. The shepherd took special delight in the deer. He selected choice grazing land for it and ordered all those who handed or who handled the animals. Uh, OK, and he ordered all those who handled the animals to be especially gentle with the deer. At night, when the flocks returned, the shepherd made sure that the deer was given water to drink. Why do you fuss only over the deer, the peasants? Uh, the peasants asked him, why don't you give the same attention to your sheep? There's a difference, he replied, the shepherd. The sheep follow me naturally. However, the deer by nature avoids people and prefers to roam in uninhabited forests and open fields. I value that it submitted itself to the confines of a stable. Man, 
The convert is like a deer in the midst of sheep. Obviously, there's a little bit of standing out and distinction going on, but it's like Hashem is so excited about that. And, you know, we read in the Besorah that there's great rejoicing over one soul that enters the kingdom. So, it's just insane. So, Baruch Hashem. All right. And then, um, want to go into G shekel here. All right. So, we're going to go ahead and drop some Vilna Gaon Kohator. And, um, yeah, we'll keep going from there. So, here we go. Says that Yaakov, well, okay, so and a time of distress it is for Yaakov from which he will be saved, Yarmiyahu 30, verse 7. The verse is numerically equivalent to 999. And it says that the Mashiach is coming and there are 999 steps. So it says Mashiach of the beginning of redemption, namely Mashiach ben Yosef. Those who occupy themselves with gathering in the exiles lighten the afflictions of Mashiach ben Yosef. Okay, so we lighten the afflictions of Mashiach ben Yosef during the period called the footsteps of Mashiach. The decree regarding the death of Mashiach ben Yosef will be nullified by subdivision into small parts. Okay, so it says that there's a parable that is likened to a king became angry with his son and swore to throw a large stone at him. Afterwards, he regretted what he said and had compassion upon him. In order to fulfill his royal decree, nevertheless, he broke up the large stone into many small stones and threw all them at his son one by one. So it says the son was not yet or was not killed, yet he suffered from the small stones. These are the birth pangs of the Mashiach. The suffering will come gradually together with the time. So it's going to come gradually together. Oh, Slika. The suffering is going to come gradually together with the 999 footsteps of Mashiach in such a way that the decree is divided up into 900 and 99 small parts. In contrast, help will come as hinted in the verse, Ve'et Zarahi Le'akov. So that's the verse talking about a time of distress. Then it says, And Yosef recognized his brothers. They did not recognize him. Bereshit 42.8 One of the traits of Yosef is not only in his own generation, but in every generation, this is the work of the adversary who hides the traits of Mashiach ben Yosef so that the heels of the Mashiach are not recognized. There's this whole idea of concealment and fulfillment and all that. So uh, that is Mashiach ben Yosef. And uh, as we're heading into the Geula, you know, we got to go through some afflictions. Because these are the footsteps of Mashiach. Okay, so were Yisrael to recognize Yosef, that is, the heels of the Mashiach ben Yosef. Wow, that is the heels of the Mashiach ben Yosef. 
which is the hills of Mashiach ben Yosef, the, which is the end gathering of the exiles. We have already been redeemed, okay, and so forth. Then we would already have been redeemed with a complete redemption. So our troubles would have already ended were Yisrael to recognize Mashiach ben Yosef. So let's gather in exiles. The hills of Mashiach are mentioned. They refer to the mission of the first Mashiach. Mashiach ben Yosef, as is known, the enemies of God and the enemies of Yisrael caused trouble to the entire process of the beginning of redemption that occurs with the hills of Mashiach. In the verse, it states regarding this matter, your enemies reviled. Tehillim 89.52 our sages have already enumerated all the tribulations that come during the footsteps of Mashiach. We have no one to lean on except our Father in heaven and his will that we occupy ourselves with the arousal from below and stand firmly against the disturbances and taunts or taunts. So we have to walk in mitzvot. We have to be making teshuva. We need to accept the converts. I mean... It's all right there. And what's so interesting is when you look at Bereshit 15.8, it says the numerical value of Irashene or Irashena, which is I shall inherit it equals Mashiach ben Yosef. And the last letters are Chet, uh, Nun, Pei. Chet, Nun, and Pei, if you spell that backwards, Pei Nun Chet, that is the word Paneach, as in Zaphanat Paneach. So, inheriting, it takes the one who is the face, who can uh, basically interpret it for us. So, the whole thing about Zaphanat Paneach was that he was the interpreter of the hidden things, and this was Yosef. And how much more so with Yeshua when he says, I speak to you the secrets but out in public i speak to them the parables so uh rabbi greenbaum all right so go to this okay the midrash on parshai kev teaches the book and the sword descended from hashemayim entwined together the loaf and the rod descended from hashemayim entwined together this is from the sifri says the Midrash expresses the conditional nature of God's covenant with Israel. A central theme in Ekev and one that appears with increasing emphasis as we advance through Devarim. Ekev begins with rich blessings and benefits that are the reward for keeping the laws of Torah. Okay, and then... Um, there's this whole thing about the land of Israel and the fruits that it gives off. It says the land to which you are coming in order to inherit is not like the land of Mitzrayim, which you left, where you sow your seed and water the land on foot like a vegetable garden. But the land that you are passing over to inherit is the land of mountains and valleys. It drinks waters according to the rain of the heavenlies. And so you think about this fact that it's like this uncertain thing. And so between G. Shekel and uh, Rabbi Greenbaum, 
they go back and forth, or Slinkai, they don't go back and forth, but they really show that in order to survive in Israel, you have to have a daily working knowledge and understanding of Hashem as you're living in the land. And so you're really um, expecting and praying and asking and humbling yourself before Hashem with all your needs, as opposed to Mitzrayim, you didn't have a need in the world. You knew the set schedule and the program for everything. The Nile overflowed, you know, uh, consistently when it uh, was scheduled to, you know, yearly. And as that happened, you know, people were like, oh, yeah, our plants are going to get water and this is how it's going to work and we can drink from it and all that kind of stuff. But there was no no bracha needed. There was no prayer lifted to ask for any of those things. And so it was just really cool and neat thinking about that entering into the land, you have to work with Hashem, like in your daily moment to moment life that you're praying to him, you're asking for him, you're seeking him and he's there to provide. And so that's all a big difference between, you know, Yisrael and Mitzrayim is that, you know, um, Israel is like the lowest part of it as far as what would be the least desirable in Israel is seven times greater than the best land of Egypt. So there is this big distinction and this gap going on. So I wanted to bring that out. And um, I mean, there's just so much that I always want to share. And I want to make sure that I can kind of finish my points here because I know that I'm not really doing a midnight tour study. I'm just kind of pushing through and just sharing, you know, what Hashem has allowed me to see this week. Um, the opening phrase of Parsha Akev coming from the Kehot Humash on the Parsha Overview. It says that the opening uh, phrase of Parsha Kev is thus interpreted in the Midrash to refer allegorically to the Messianic era. This is because hearing, aside from the word uh, hearing, aside from leading to seeing, also prepares us for the future messianic redemption. As noted, hearing enables us to reach our own essence as a result and see as a result and reward for manifesting our divine essence in the revelation of God's essence that will occur after the final redemption. So if we hear first like a Kev and Shema then we it'll lead to seeing you know if we can remain in the words of mashiach now like when he is actually actualized we will be able to see you know everything that we placed our hope in and it, you know the one thought that's been in my mind too as far as as we head into the geula when yeshua actually shows up how do we know how are we going to know that it's him you know, because he, Mashiach in Matthew 24 says many false messiahs will come in my name and say, here I am. You know, and so it's just kind of like, well, how do we know it's really him or not? Because just because he shows up in Israel with Kippa and ZZ, does that make him Mashiach? Like, no. So, you know, 
uh, how much are we really hearing and paying attention to him to know who he truly is? And it was just kind of like I thought to myself, you know, do I truly know Mama Shiok? And so we have this 40 days of Teshuvah to really like get down in there and, and really develop a beautiful, intimate, close relationship with Hashem and his Mashiach so that we know that when Mashiach returns that we will truly know who he is. So maybe so, maybe so. Maybe we merit the redemption of Mashiach Yeshua speedily and soon in our days. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Asher natan lanu todat emet, Vechaye olam natabet okeinu, Baruch atah Adonai, Noten haTorah. Amen. Amen. May we merit to see Mashiach Yeshua speedily and soon in our days. May these 40 days of Teshuvah begin and end with transformation restoration and healing in the Mashiach Yeshua. Amen. Shalom and Shavuot Tov.